0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, overcoming our culture's war on the American family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician, Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks.
1: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, the other half of the Seeing and Believing dynamic duo. You know, Kevin, if they made a movie about some of our conversations, I think they'd probably call it The Two Podcasters.
0: Yeah, I'd look forward to that. They'd give us special little podcast miters and our own armored glass podcast mobile to ride around in. Sounds pretty good. This does beg the question, though, what would our Sistine Chapel
1: look like?
0: I'm not sure. I would hope that it would feature more clothes, though. <laughs> we can only pray. Listeners, we're going to be talking
1: about the new Netflix drama from Fernando Meirelles, The Two
0: Popes. And then we're going to be taking a look at the new film from Osgood Perkins, his dark reimagining of the Grimm fairy tale featuring Hansel and Gretel, titled Gretel and Hansel. All that's coming up on this very special episode, episode 235
1: of Seeing and Believing.
0: Stay where I can see you. They have a slide! And I don't see any children.
1: It also smells of bacon, you know. Yes, we are here at Seeing and Believing, Kevin. I feel like we had a little too much fun in that introduction with our Pope jokes. I didn't know that that was a thing, but it is now Pope jokes.
0: <laughs> you know, I actually feel like I've heard quite a few jokes of the variety of you know a Pope, a Rabbi, and uh, you know a monk walk into a bar of of that sort of variety. I can't remember any of them right now and i'm drawing a complete blank it would be the one time when knowing Mm -hmm. a joke like that would actually be appropriate
1: yeah well you know i am wearing all white right now so it is fitting for this episode we're going to be talking about that movie a little bit later the two popes in segment two for now we're going to be talking about a fairy tale and i do have to say this kevin this is one of those fairy tales where you don't gather the family around to watch.
0: It's a little bit darker than the the usual Disney fare, that's for sure. Yeah,
1: no, that's for sure. So we're going to be talking about Gretel and Hansel. Here's the film's official synopsis. A long time ago, in a distant fairy tale countryside, a young girl leads her little brother into a dark wood in desperate search of food and work, only to stumble upon a nexus of terrifying evil. From Osgood, Oz Perkins, the director of The Black Coat's Daughter, and I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. The film stars Sophia Lillis, newcomer Sammy Leakey, and Alice Krige Kevin, Oz Perkins has slowly been carving out this market in the horror world with his previous two films. We talked about Black Coat's Daughter when it released a couple of years ago. Saying that, my question to kind of get us all started is this, after watching Gretel and Hansel, would you say that Perkins takes a step forward with this
0: project, or do you see it as something like a misstep for the young director? Well, you know, it's interesting because we talked about The Black Coat's Daughter on an earlier episode of the podcast way, way back when, and that was a film that you and I were impressed by in some ways with his visual sense and just how artfully it was put together, but had a little bit, or at least I remember that I had some problems with just feeling like it was a little bit empty at the end, or at least that there wasn't a whole lot beyond the the really engaging filmmaking and some of the ideas that are in the the subtext of the film. So that's kind of where I'm starting off with in coming to Gretel and Hansel and thinking about it in context with Perkins' career. And I think that in that light, I would have to call Gretel and Hansel kind of not really a step forward or a misstep or a step back, but more of like a lateral step in that I... I really appreciate a lot of what he's doing visually with this film and just the atmosphere it has, which is just through the roof. But again, I just don't think that this film really comes together in the way that he wants it. And we're certainly going to talk about why that might be the more we get into this. But yeah, I was was curiously left a little bit – I was left cold by this film, if I'm being honest. So it's – an unfortunate uh, lack of a step forward, although, you know, there's definitely a lot to appreciate here. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are, though. Yeah, so I, I did like the Black
1: Coke's daughter more than you did. And I like the ending because I think the ending says something about evil and the promises of evil and then where evil leaves us. And particularly the character at the end where she's left after that movie's over and after she's done what she is supposedly supposed to do. And I was going into this movie pretty excited because you said a word that I think really nails Perkins, and that's atmosphere. And the Black Coat's daughter has just incredible atmosphere. This film has incredible atmosphere, There was at least once, Kevin, where a a chill ran down my spine. It literally happened. I felt like just the setting of particular scenes were just incredibly creepy and and mysterious and heavy. I think where this film does fall apart are some of the ideas that it's trying to work through. And then I guess the story just leaves me kind kind of wanting. I'm not sure how much is there and we can kind of get into that. So, I actually think this is a step back, but probably because I just like The Black Coat's Daughter a good deal. I I think it ended up being one of my favorite horror films of that year.
0: I think it was I think it was pretty good and so a little disappointed in this one. The thing that I keep thinking about when I think about Gretel and Hansel is how it much it reminds me of robert edgar robert eggers the witch just in both in terms of the subject matter i mean a witch features prominently in both of them and there is this feminist thread running through both films where it considers witchcraft not just as uh its traditional depiction as a a form of black magic as uh, f- uh women who uh seek to commune with the devil or Uh, acquire more power for themselves at the cost of their souls and sees that more as a way for women who back in the days of of the witch trials and all of that being at the bottom of the of the social ladder, so to speak, witchcraft being almost a way for them to seek out the power that has been denied of from them or wrested from them uh, by men and by society in general. And that's something that we see in both films. I think that for me, Gretel and Hansel shows just how hard of a job Robert Eggers had in making The Witch and what a great job he did walking the tightrope where he was able to maintain that kind of uh, feminist subtext of this this dark power simultaneously liberating and corrupting uh, Thomason, the central character of that film, and doing so in a way that was deeply disturbing, but also really engaging in the way it kind of teased out those resonances with its themes. With Gretel and Hansel, I think Perkins is working in a similar mode when Gretel and her brother end up with the, you know, the, the wicked witch in the woods, which we all know from the classic fairy tale, we're kind of expecting things to go in, in one direction where it's sort of the two children against the, the wicked old witch. But what Perkins does is he kind of shifts the alliances a little bit. So it's almost as if the witch is trying to mentor Gretel or, or give her power or have, teach her how to claim her own power, which is an interesting twist. I think the problem with Gretel and Hansel is I didn't really get that same mingled sense of liberation and corruption that Eggers threaded so finely through the witch. And this one, I kind of get the sense that Perkins wants us to see this as a sort of liberation for Gretel, This what, what she sees in the witch and what the witch does, but by the end of the film, I was kind of left wondering, well, what what exactly is Perkins saying about this this witch's power? It doesn't seem altogether she doesn't seem like an altogether villainous sort of character, but also her power we don't really see what it is other than something wholly malevolent. so it's it's kind of a little bit muddled thematically in, in that sense. And because it's so muddled in that area, I don't think that the, the resonances that Perkins is trying to draw out through his image-making really land in the way he wants them to.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're really kind of hitting that, that core thematic thread, and that's desperation meeting an opportunity and there are there, there's a great setup here for that you have this character and they don't have any food their family doesn't have any food and everywhere this character goes everywhere Gretel's character goes people are trying to take things from her in order to offer her sanctuary or an opportunity to survive to escape the famine Whatever it is. And there is this line throughout the film about gifts. Nothing is free. Gifts require something. And when that character, when Gretel's character is mentored by the witch, you see that as this almost this out, this this apple, this poisoned apple that will somehow fix things. And yet, that thematic chord just kind of dangles at the end, and I I walk away not really knowing what this means, and how this works into the story, how this works into the thematic core when we get to the end. And, And really, that's problematic because of the witch and the way that she goes about it, and then how that affects not just men, but also children, and I... It just feels very, very muddled. But there are some fascinating ideas about our society and how nothing is free, and how desperation can breed evil intentions. I don't think the film finds where to land in all that, um, but there are some fun ideas, and you got some you know chilly atmosphere that works into this almost seduction towards evil and you can see this character gretel kind of taking it step by step and just kind of wondering where this is going to lead her and what this is going to lead her to do to her brother and how that relationship will continue or maybe you know maybe won't
0: continue the film starts really promisingly. I'll give it that. The there's this this prologue before we get the title sequence that is just full, utterly full of atmosphere and menace and this deep sense that that there's there are dark powers in this world that are to be feared. And Perkins uh evokes that with such razor razor sharp efficiency and some very striking images. There's uh, this image of a of a man kind of climbing up this rocky hillside to meet with a a witch, and she's kind of sitting inside of this triangle that's silhouetted against the the overcast sky, and it's it's a very yeah you know, it, it's a very engaging image, and it really f- sets the tone for the quality of the image-making that Perkins and his cinematographer are able to bring to this film. Uh, Gallo Olivares is, I think this is his first feature film and is definitely his first with Perkins. And it's just, it looks fantastic. And I think the beginning scenes where we see Gretel and Hansel kind of strike out on their own also does a great job of sort of saying, this Kind of this fairy tale feel like there's a lot of stuff that is extremely overbearing and and menacing towards them. You don't really quite understand why some things happen to them, why so many adults are hostile towards them, why their mother is, is so just ferociously seemingly uh, eager to get them out of the house, why they encounter adults who behave towards them as they do. That feels very effectively fairy tale like i think where the film of kind of loses its way though is when the witch comes into play it it feels like there's not really a place for her in this story because Perkins really wants to, Perkins and the screenwriter Rob Hayes really want to suggest a lot of very very um modern themes with the way the witch is Power works, the way she thinks of her place in society, the reasons that she had for claiming her power in the first place. Those are all interesting as far as they go, but it seems a little bit at odds with this much moodier, simpler fairy tale feel that's established at the beginning. And they don't gel very well, and Perkins never really finds a way to make it feel like they almost exist in the same universe. And so by the by the end of the film where we kind of get the sense that yeah, there's these really dark fairy tale like powers in the world and they can be good for you used for good or used for evil. It's sort of like, well, that doesn't that doesn't feel right. It feels a little bit like a betrayal of the of the tale that it's a dark reimagining of.
1: Yeah, and and I think too just on a nuts and bolts level, I'm not sure the two children are all that endearing, and I don't know if the film does a great job of, I would say making them likable, but making them, I don't know, interesting. Uh I don't particularly care for the children outside of the fact that I care for children in general, and I don't want children to get hurt. But I'm, I, it feels like some of their personalities are, are muted. I want to talk about the fairy tale quality and the atmosphere we've been mentioning throughout the movie. And I think what Perkins does well is he puts together not just chilling production design, but he finds a way to make those compositions add to the overall effect Of that design and we get some great shots a number of shots where light is streaming in from the outside through windows and characters are almost uh, either silhouetted or they're they're darkened a bit and we get this contrast between light trying to burst in but evil inside and there's also an added effect when many of those windows are stained glass So it really does, it looks good, but there's this moody, almost artistic fairy tale atmosphere to the overall look. Also, there are a number of different shots where characters, dark figures, are kind of in the background, they're kind of lurking. And those are really just, you know, creepy and and strange. And you never know when a character's gonna kind of jump out. This this film doesn't have a lot of jump scares, but you, you don't really know what will come out of the corners of this screen. And in some senses, the force does feel alive. And that goes to the overall fairy tale quality of this of this movie. And I, you know, I do appreciate a lot of what Perkins has going on in terms of the visual quality and the vision of this movie. I just don't know if it kind of works the way that he wants to. At the same time, it's a very crisp movie. It's like an hour and 27 minutes. It gets in, it gets out. It understands what it's doing. And I don't think it pushes too hard on that, that prestige horror button.
0: Uh, It just allows itself to be a, a pretty moody horror movie, which I can appreciate. It doesn't overstay its welcome for sure. I'm not sure though that it does know what it's doing on a thematic level. I certainly know that it's evoking a lot of things, but I think of one I think it's the first line that we hear in the film, uh, where uh it, it's in voiceover, it's telling the the prologue, kind of the backstory of The witch and says, this is, this is a fairy tale. It exists, uh, to, to teach you something is the upshot of this first line of dialogue. But by the end of the film, I'm not sure what this version of the fairy tale is trying to teach. Is it, is it trying to teach us that power needs to be claimed for oneself is it trying is it trying to say that dark power can be good if it's used in the service of good aims it it doesn't feel as if perkins is really sure which of these avenues to follow to its logical conclusion so we kind of go halfway down a lot of paths and by the end it feels like there's a lot of interesting nuggets to to chew on But it doesn't really feel as if it's really brought home any of those themes to completion. And I think that that, at least for a story that starts out promising, kind of a very moralistic outlook. Not moralistic in the sense of finger wagging, but just moralistic in the sense that it has a, a truth to impart to the audience. I find it unsatisfying that by the end, it doesn't really seem to have much more than... Uh, some j- half-hearted gestures in various directions.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you, you get some little ideas here and there that that are really fascinating. At one point, we learn about overabundance and we learn where a character gets her food. And it says something about consumerism and how, hey, nothing is free. And overabundance does hurt the people around us. I'm not sure, like you said, where that's going to end up going. And you also get this sense too that the witch is, she envies Gretel and she envies where she is in life, her age, the opportunity she has in front of her. And there's almost this opening up of the witch where we get inside of her personal life, but nothing's you know, nothing's done with that either. So we've got all these kind of ideas sort of, you know, floating around, uh, these interesting plot points, but it doesn't come together in something as, um, you know, so a cohesive picture, I should say. And that, you know, definitely hurts its prospects.
0: I guess it's not really clear to me what the witch wants out of her mentorship of Gretel. I mean, in the classic fairy tale, obviously, all the witch wants to do is just eat the children. She doesn't really need a motivation. She's a witch, and that's what witches do—they eat children. In that story, in this in this film, Perkins kind of teases us with the idea that this witch does have a worldview, and she does have things that she wants, and that there's this entire inner life that we that we're supposed to, if not sympathize with, at least understand uh, by the end of the film but i i think the problem is that he never really as a character she never really gives us as the audience a sense of what what her motivation is like why why does she take gretel specifically under her wing when so many other children have gone the way of the uh of the furnace you know like what what does she want And I think that's maybe the weakness of Perkins's whole approach here is that in humanizing the witch to this extent and really inviting us to, um, to read into her and even to identify with her in some ways, he introduces a level of complexity that this screenplay doesn't really have the, the bones to, to back up. If it were kind of a simple story, like she's just a witch, she's, eats people or she's a servant of the devil and she just wants to do evil because that's what servants of the devil do that that's a level of simplicity that would work with the ambiguity of this film by introducing all that complexity though the all of that simplicity begins to feel a lot less satisfying I guess that what I was looking for at the end of this film was something on the level of that final image of Robert Eggers as the witch where we see uh, the main character, uh, she's, well, spoilers for the witch incoming in case anybody hasn't seen it and still wants to, but there's that scene where the the central character is laughing and her face is in shadow, and it's a image both of exultation, it's joy for her, but it's kind of terror for the rest of us. And that kind of mingled quality of understanding the main character while also being frightened by what she's chosen to become it feels like Perkins was going for something like that with this film and really does not get there
1: no I think that's well said listeners that is our review of Gretel and Hansel if you've seen this horror film please let us know your thoughts we look forward to hearing them you can tweet us at Pod at C Believe, P-O-D on Twitter. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc@gmail.com. C-A-P-C, at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about a film that's generated some Oscar nominations, The Two Popes. We're going to be discussing that here in just a bit. <laughs> Listeners, we want to take an opportunity before we jump into segment two to get to some listener feedback as well as talk a little bit about Christ and pop culture. First, I want to say thank you to everyone who supported us through our Patreon campaign. We very much appreciate it. It helps keep the podcast going and helps us to kind of get out in a number of different places. As many of you have seen, we are now on Spotify, so you can listen to our podcast on Spotify. I love Spotify, Kevin. I have a membership through Spotify, so I can listen to myself as often as I want. (laughs) And pay money for the privilege. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. You can go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast to support us. We have a number of different levels uh, where you can donate and get some perks. And one of those is the what can you buy for $5 level. It's one of our favorites. And it always elicits the question, Kevin, uh, what could someone buy for five bucks?
0: Five bucks would uh, buy you some homegrown penicillin. And if that sounds uh, odd to you, Wade, uh, I'll explain my thought process on this a little bit. Uh, my roommate in college was uh, kind of a pre med student, and he would, uh, you know, do do lots of pre med student kind of things. <laughs> but one thing that he did was he had a spaghetti jar uh, full of like a little bit of. Spaghetti sauce left, and he said that he was going to grow some penicillin, and what that involved was him just leaving the spaghetti jar on top of our refrigerator for a few months, and as you can expect, um, things started growing in there, and he claimed it was penicillin. Yeah. I don't know if it was. I wasn't eager to test it, but hey, he was the pre-med student. Uh, Kevin, I
1: I really hate to burst your bubble, but I think I know what happened. He didn't want to clean the jar, and he just made up a story.
0: You know, I would have liked to have thought that we had this sort of relationship where he didn't, where we wouldn't have to make up elaborate lies about homegrown penicillin in order to justify hmm. the lack of doing chores. But, you know, uh, uh, who am I to judge?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good one. I'm going to mm. use it. Um, did he also <laughs> say that, you know, Balto was going to come pick it up? I don't know.
0: <laughs> uh he he said nothing about that but you are you can feel free to put whatever personal spin on that you want i'm, I'm sure <laughs> listeners you can support us for five bucks a month get some great perks like i
1: mentioned before just go to patreon.com forward slash sing underscore believing underscore podcast
0: yeah we we really appreciate you uh listening to us talk about our odd college roommate stories but we really also appreciate it when you give us your feedback and let us know what you've been watching and Wade we actually got a, a quite of a, a lengthy epistle from one of our listeners Adam Peterson about Joker a movie that obviously is pretty divisive but has gotten a few Oscar nominations a few meaning more than any other <laughs> Oscar-nominated film and um, But Adam was, you know, doing his due diligence on Oscar season and watching the nominees. And he had this to say about Joker. He said, "'Guys, I'm catching up on all the Best Picture nominees and listening to your reviews on the podcast. I must say I was extremely disappointed with your review of Joker.'" Adam goes on to say, let me say it from the outset that I do not believe it is some sort of modern masterpiece, right now it's struggling to stay in my top 15, let alone my top 10 of the year, but I do believe that your review shortchanged much of what the movie is principally about, namely mental illness. Your review gave little, if any, mention to this theme. In fact, Kevin mentioned that we are not interested in the psychology of the Joker so much as the reactions he elicits out of people around him. I think this is the exact opposite of the case, and the exact opposite of what Phillips was setting out to do with the character. Phillips is eminently interested in the psychology of the Joker, which is why we follow him around the whole movie. At the end, Joker admits he has no politics, he doesn't care about the movement that has been started in response to the clown comment, he's just a loner who got rejected which is very true to the character, both in the comics and in the previous iterations in film. So uh, Adam goes on to to write more about his thoughts about Joker. Thanks so much for writing in, Adam. I'm sorry that uh, we disagreed on Joker. He raises some uh, interesting points, though, that maybe you and I can chat about a little bit, uh, Wade, because we didn't really—it's true, we didn't— go in depth into the portrayal of mental illness when we reviewed the movie back in October on the show so uh let's let's get into that a little bit now uh, what what do you think about uh the stuff that Adam raises in his email
1: yeah it feels <laughs> crazy we talked about that in October uh yeah time time is flying <laughs> it's been a long few months it's been a long few months you know I think the film positions itself to be about mental illness. I'm just not sure it, it says much about it. And and perhaps that's why we didn't mention it. And maybe we could have given a a better summary of that aspect of the movie. I just, I, I don't really, I don't really know what to say. Joker definitely craves attention. Uh, he wants to be noticed. He wants a hug. And... I don't know. That feels like it's, like it's it. Uh, certainly what he's struggling with causes him to do a number of different things, but it, I am I'm, tr- I'm trying to look at that angle. And, and I remember in the movie kind of trying to grab a hold of that. I just, I don't know if the film has anything worthwhile to say, are we supposed to relate to the Joker? Are we supposed to feel compassion towards him? Uh, maybe i I, i'm not sure and and i don't think at least my position now is i don't think it's because i i don't have anything to say about that i just don't think the film has anything to say about that but as you know at you know adams talked about i and we've seen through the academy awards a lot of people think it does say something worthwhile so there there is that i just i can't seem to find it personally
0: yeah, I mean, it's true. In the review on the show, I, I did talk about how uh, we're not really interested in the psychology of the Joker so much as the reactions that he gets or the way that we react to him. And I, I think that part of the reason, uh, I think that, and, and part of the reason that I that thought kind of came out in response to Phillips's film is that I really, I really don't think that the film is. Interested enough in his psychology to really dig down into it and make it it feel meaningful, at least least for me. At some points, the film does seem to want to suggest that this is a simply mentally ill character who finds himself at the center of this, this whole movement, but has no personal interest in it. But at other points, it does seem like Philip is trying to position the Joker as... As a, a meaningful figure, not simply a uh, mentally ill individual, but somebody who represents something about society as a whole. And I think it doesn't really dig deep enough into either of those things for it to feel meaningful to me. So it feels a little bit like it's ankle deep in a couple of ponds. But, you know, Adam's not the only person to disagree with us on that. So, I don't know, maybe you see something that that we're just missing. But, I don't know, it's just not there for me. Yeah, well, Adam, we,
1: as always, appreciate your comments and appreciate the discussion. And this was a good – it's a good week to do that because the Oscars, they're coming up in just a couple of days. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's good that we kind of got some more thoughts out about Joker because people are definitely going to be talking about it. Listeners, make sure to send us any tweets or ideas or thoughts our way if you want us to talk about them on the show. Just tweet us at Pod at P or if you have something a little bit longer like Adam, you can email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You know, the hardest thing is to listen, to hear his voice, God's voice. So even for a pope? Perhaps especially for a pope. <coughs> you know, when I was a young man hundreds of years ago, I always knew what he wanted of me, what God wanted, what purpose he had for me.
0: But now, I don't know. Well, we're back here on the second half of the show. Sadly, Wade, our special podcaster miters and our special armored podcast mobile has not materialized. I'm sorry to say, so we're just going to have to keep on trucking the, the way we normally do. We're just gonna keep on keeping on. Uh keep the main thing the main thing.
1: But it will come one day. <laughs>
0: yeah. We we will have yeah. the car. Netflix, if you are if you are listening, which I'm sure you are, please call us. You know, we are totally open to you adapting the the story of our of our humble podcast and maybe adding a little pizzazz in those areas. So, you know, We'll, we'll leave our contact information at the end of the show, as is our custom. But for now, Wade, I guess we will talk about two individuals who do have special hats and special vehicles. The Two Popes, who are the stars of a film, titled appropriately, The Two Popes. Written by Anthony McCartan and based on McCartan's play The Pope, The Two Popes explores the relationship between two men of the cloth who, at least at first glance in this film, are very different— Jorge Bergoglio, played by Jonathan Price in an Oscar-nominated role, is a plain-spoken cardinal from Argentina as likely to talk about soccer as he is about theology. Joseph Ratzinger, played here by Anthony Hopkins in another Oscar-nominated role, plays Joseph Ratzinger, the reserved, religiously conservative Austrian who was elected as pope in 2005. These two men are probably best known to at least those of us in the Protestant world as Pope Francis and Pope Benedict XVI, respectively. And this film follows their relationship as they bounce off of each other, discussing ideas, their ambitions for the Catholic Church, and their own highly complex pasts. Wade, this is a film that, uh, like I said, was directed from a play, and it's gotten a lot of attention, appropriately so, for its uh, essential nature as a two-hander the two central characters played by hopkins and price are front and center here and i'm curious to know what your thoughts are in this area does such a perhaps stage band premise open itself up in a cinematic way to you in fernando morelis's directing and do you think that regardless of its cinematic qualities, this is a film that does justice to the two figures at its center? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of this, it's a great question for this movie. It
1: really is, because there is a good deal of material to mine into. First of all, you have the, the historical reality of these two characters and how the story reflects Uh, their lives and how it doesn't, how it is filled with inaccuracies. Then you have to think about, well, what is the movie trying to do? Is it trying to give us a history lesson or is it trying to set these two characters up as symbols of sorts and one is the conservative individual one is the more progressive individual and just let them kind of duke it out and us to kind of think through these two ideals in these two perspectives and then you kind of just boil down to well what about the performances do we like hanging out with these characters and i think at the very least while this is an imperfect film and i have a number of different issues with the way the film goes about treating its subject i do think it is a lot of fun to watch these two veteran actors you know, you' you've got Price, you've got Hopkins, just to kind of argue with each other and to joke around with each other and uh, talk about soccer and play the piano. That's pretty riveting. There's a scene, a big scene that happens in the Sistine Chapel, and it's all it's it's all very riveting. And in that sense, this is this is a fun movie to watch. Now, Thematically, I think it's pretty poor in terms of the way it presents the two perspectives. Historically, it's, it is filled with inaccuracies, which does question um, just the overall value of the movie. But but yeah, I think it's a I thought it was a pretty interesting movie to watch. What about you, Kevin?
0: I think that uh, at least going back to my question about the this. Possible stage-bound nature of this film, I I kind of put that in there almost as a way so I could then swoop in and say no, it's not stage-bound at all. I do think that Mayrellis does a great job with his directing of this film, especially in the in the first half where we see the the pomp and circumstance surrounding the papacy um, almost as this this dance. There's this funny moment where. We see the cardinals filing in to elect uh, Pope Benedict Sixteenth, and all of the, the pomp and pageantry surrounding that. And uh, it's it's all edited with this very rhythmic uh, sense to it. And there's even this cheeky little bit of Abba's Dancing Queen playing <laughs> yeah. over the soundtrack. Yeah. And I think that Mireles really does a great job in bringing that sort of verve to his directing through throughout the picture but mostly in this first half um I did find myself being a little bit disappointed with the um with the ways that the film ends up developing the characters of the two men as its center you know as I was prepping for this segment of the podcast, I was you know doing some research and uh, I was surprised to see that this was actually based on a play. I didn't know that at first. Um, and I, I was interested to see that the play's title is just The Pope. And that seems like a lot more appropriate of a title for this film than The Two Popes, simply because it kind of feels like the film is really only interested in one of these two men. Pope Francis being the, the central character. We get so much backstory on him. We spend uh, a ton of time in, in sort of the, getting the backstory of, of his history as a a priest a, in Argentina during its political troubles and unrest, kind of the way that he l- lost everything during that time, and then kind of from those ashes Became the the figure that is so widely known and loved today. And I w- I guess I was disappointed to see that this film shows very little, one could even say, no interest in Pope Benedict XVI as a person. He's, he's, he seems like he's in the movie almost simply as a foil to to Pope Francis, which, not that there's anything wrong with that storytelling choice, it is a little bit of a disappointment to have that opportunity to really dig deeply into these two characters and to really only go after one of them. And I guess as a result, the the film does end up feeling unbalanced, not in the sense that it sides with one or the other, but more so it's just, there's so much time spent on one that the film feels a little bit ungainly.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, you think about the writer here, Anthony, He's written The Theory of Everything, Darkest Hour, Bohemian Rhapsody. And all of those movies, in one way or another, has generated controversy and how they stretch details within history. And I think this one takes that almost to another level. And I don't have the background to go into every detail, but I I do want to point listeners to Stephen Graydonis's review at the National Catholic Register. And he does a great job of looking at this story and comparing it to these two characters within history and who they were and the issues that they tackled. And this movie is definitely a simplistic version that attempts to make one character one thing and another character another thing when. It was much more complicated than that. And so then what you have to ask yourself is, okay, historical inaccuracies aside, maybe this is almost a a parable. You have a conservative on one side, Pope Benedict, played by Hopkins. You have a progressive on the other side, Pope Francis, played by Price. And this is just a movie that says, let's talk about these ideas. Well, then we get to the part where, Kevin, and, and you brought it up. This, in in that sense, shouldn't be called, you know, the the two popes. It should be called the one pope because only one perspective inside is really seen here. Hopkins does a fantastic job. But when he talks about tradition and rules and some of his conservative values, it's just, it's very cliche. There's really no getting at his perspective and what he means by that. And naturally, like I, I assume a movie like this is probably going to fall under the progressive side. And you get Price talking about you know love and and inclusion, and he's given that almost without any sort of um, conflict that he is he is for all of those things. When it it was much, it is more complicated than that uh, in real life. And and so we don't ever get to see Benedict's side. And so. As a film or a parable about ideas, I don't think it really works either. So it kind of messes up on both fronts. And that's why it gets back to kind of what I mentioned earlier. It is kind of a fun and entertaining picture, but I'm not wrestling with ideas. If I go into this movie and I'm kind of already on Pope Francis's side, the progressive side, then yeah, like I think it. It, okay, yeah, I, it probably makes me feel good, but there's, there's no sort of like digging in deep and understanding where Benedict is coming from and what he's trying to say and how that is reflected in the life of Pope Francis. They're, they're kind of just ripped apart in their own spectrums and that's that. And the film is going to go clearly with Pope Francis from beginning to end. And I think too, Kevin, we get some historical backstory with Francis. We get him kind of seeing his life growing up and it's not bad. Um, but, It's not as good as these characters talking it out. And that's why I wish they could have just kind of wiped Francis's backstory of seeing him as a young man and instead given more time to Benedict and really just kind of working through some of these ideas. And um, I think it would have made the film work uh, much better.
0: Yeah, I think those those flashbacks are. I I don't have a problem with them necessarily. I think that they're they're well done, and I like the actor who plays the the younger, uh, Jorge Bergoglio. I think he's he's quite good. I think the the problem is though that it doesn't really they don't really add anything to the the present conflict. Like the 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 film's main idea is really at least purported to be at the outset that there's going there's this conflict between uh, two men who see the world and their faith very differently and have and they don't want to compromise. They both have very strong visions for what they want the Catholic Church to be. and they feel so strongly about that that they each want to convince the other one that the other one is wrong and that he is right. And that's a very interesting conflict to get between, you know, the two successors of St. Peter, right? Like these are two really titans in the, in the Catholic church for them to have such, uh, at least as it's set forth in the film, such polar opposite ways of seeing their faith, regardless of whether that's true to the, the real life figures that can be interesting and engaging to, to watch on screen, to watch them really duke it out, um, I think the problem is the film doesn't really have much interest in in exploring that conflict so much as it's interested in showing uh, uh, Pope Francis's star on the rise and Pope Benedict's star on the decline. And I think that's—it's it's an unfortunate way for uh, McCartan and Mireles to approach this material when— there is a really rich possibility to get into questions of you know what what is religion for what what is organized religion's function in society and in one's personal life there's all these different interesting ways places they could go and it kind of ends up being mostly a character study of pope francis uh, almost entirely any development we get of benedict is there, primarily, to point out aspects of Francis's character more strongly. It's just, it's a missed opportunity, and yeah, you know, I hate to to beat up on McCartan too much, but given movies like Bohemian Rhapsody and The Theory of Everything, it does seem like kind of a pattern for for him as a writer to kind of go for the easily digestible narrative of these of these real life figures lives and really go for that easy narrative instead of digging into the complications and truly coming to understand the people at his film, at his screenplay center.
1: Yeah. And, and just kind of looking at at Pope Benedict and from what I understand, he didn't necessarily want to be Pope. He wasn't someone that was lobbying for the job. He was more of a scholar, a researcher and, we don't see that. And, and that's, for me, when real life is more interesting than this fictional narrative. Uh, I also think the form uh, the film takes is a little distracting. You've got uh, almost these uh, documentary shots, uh, handheld shots. You've got some zooms. And it definitely seems to communicate that. Hey, this is an on-the-ground conversation, kind of an intimate conversation. We're almost, we're almost peering in on something we would never be able to hear. At the same time, it almost wants to add this realistic uh, value to the film. And I think if we're going for, hey, these are two figures; they're two symbols. One is where the church has come from. One is where the church is going. <laughs> You, you need something a little more, I, I don't know if you would say fantastic, but you need something to communicate that they are symbols. And I think that's where the film kind of gets into a little bit trouble when you're thinking about history and you're thinking about uh, what this movie is attempting to do. Uh, I did mention it earlier. You, you know, there's this great Sistine Chapel recreation. The set looks beautiful. The sets are really pretty amazing here. And we do get some emotional moments. I think the dialogue is is pretty witty for the most part. I think it's pretty lively. At times it's even... It's even uh, emotional, and just those little touches too. You mentioned uh, Abba's dancing queen. Uh, there's also Benedict he wears this this tracker, this fitness tracker, and it, it tells him to keep moving, which is kind of funny because we're talking about forward motion in the church. Uh, so there's some really nice touches there, and it, it it's it's not one of those movies, Kevin, that I walked away and saying, oh, you know, I was I felt like that was kind of boring. I, you know, I, I was invested in it. Um, it just it, it just fell short and it it did what you mentioned. It went kind of for the easy narrative here.
0: Yeah, and I feel like as the film goes on, is directing also kind of falls into a little bit of of a, a rhythm that becomes familiar enough to be to become monotonous after a little while. I think of and I'm interested to get your thoughts on this as well, because it starts off being a very engaging choice and it's edited very in a very lively fashion. Uh, Mayrellis often will cut away from the, the close-ups of the actors conversing or from this the scene of the, the cardinals making their decision and focuses on the artwork on the walls, either a, spe- a specific figure in a fresco or that, that famous uh Scene of God touching fingertips with Adam in the creation of Adam, or even just focusing in on uh, the wound in one of Christ's hands in one of these uh, paintings. Those are all, that's a really interesting device. I, it kind of by the end of the film gets into a little bit of. I don't I don't want to say a, a crutch that's not the word I'm looking for it does it does seem like he kind of gets a little comfortable with it and becomes familiar without really evolving or developing any uh, interesting juxtapositions except insofar as this character is saying something surprising or shocking and so it cuts to a character in a painting looking a little bit shocked, which is you know it, n- there's nothing technically wrong with it it's just a, it's a little obvious and maybe I guess that's kind of my overall problem with the film is as a whole is not that it's bad it's just it feels a little obvious and it could have been so much more yeah and I, I think it I think it does kind of run out of steam
1: as we go towards the end and, and I think it almost reflects the film's sort of understanding of the faith and just kind of pulling out certain complications. And it, it seems to take the artwork that's within this world and simplify it to where it's whatever it means is directly on the surface and you can cut there and you you figure out what that painting is. And that's why it's there. Uh, and it I feel like it waters down... The meaning of this artwork within the Christian religion, and the meaning of this artwork just in general, uh, and also just the way that the Catholic faith sees these icons or these images and what they mean within their religion. I I just felt like the film, not not lazy, but it but it just. Uh, it does go for that kind of that easy route, and, and so perhaps it, at least it leads me to believe that maybe this movie doesn't quite understand what it's depicting as well as it should, or just the way that that's communicated is not done to reflect the vision of of the director here.
0: Listeners, that is our review of The Two Popes. If you have seen this film, it is currently streaming on Netflix and you want to weigh in on your thoughts about it, we'd love to hear from you. You can always email us or tweet us. We've provided that information earlier in the episode. But for now, Wade, we've reached the end of the show, which means that it's time to recommend something from the world of television, or film to our listeners, what do you have to recommend to us on this Oscar night weekend?
1: (laughs) Well, here's the deal. I want to give the people what they want. And so I'm going to (laughs) talk about the new Taylor Swift documentary on Netflix. Now, this played at Sundance, quickly released on Netflix. It's called Miss Americana, directed by Lana Wilson. And I like Taylor Swift. I like Taylor Swift a lot. I like her music a lot. And... uh, I don't know. It just kind of happened, and it's. <laughs> I like how you say that. It just. It just kind of happened, <laughs> you know. It, it just kind of happens, and as, as some things do. As, as some things do. And I've always just been kind of fascinated with her character and the way that she's perceived in just. The national conversation. There's also the conflict with Kanye West. There's kind of all of that. And, and, and I've always wondered how much is, is directed by her? How much is directed by just being famous? And this is a documentary that follows uh, Taylor Swift around for a couple of different years. And you get the sense that in one way, Taylor is is directing a character towards the camera but in another sense there are particular scenes in large sections of this documentary where it seems like we're actually getting to hear from her in a very real way as she talks about fame and being famous at a young age and going through some of these conflicts and then just kind of understanding how to communicate her voice and her opinions and when we get to the end of this movie, it certainly feels like Taylor Swift is still in progress. Uh, it also kind of just makes me sad because, um, Fame is just wild, you know. And I've told people sometimes I just I don't know if I'd wish fame on my worst enemy because of what it can do to people and what we do to those who are famous. So a lot of those ideas are kind of embedded in this documentary. And then too, it's just also kind of fun to watch certain songs evolve from being written to the ideas that you get while you're recording it, and then being sung to thousands and thousands of people. So there's kind of a lot in this documentary. I would I would definitely recommended it's currently playing on Netflix uh, Miss Americana
0: I'm endlessly fascinated by by books and films that really probe at what it, you know what, what it's like to be so famous that you kind of warp reality around yourself. And I think that's definitely true of Taylor Swift. The thing about the, the Miss Americana documentary, I haven't seen it, but I, I'm really interested to know what the answer to this question is, Wade. Do you think that this film really probes at how even Swift's fame can warp a documentary around herself so that you know, we wonder, are we getting the truth or are we getting swift propaganda? That's kind of, that's an, an endlessly fascinating question for me. I'm wondering how the documentary ad- answers that question.
1: Yeah, it, I, I don't think the documentary probes that question. And this is, this is definitely from her perspective. And I would have liked to explore that a little bit more. And, and, and like I mentioned, there are some sections where you just wonder, okay, are we, is this another character for us? Uh, telling us how does she, is she trying to tell us how she wants to be perceived by the world? Um, but then there are other there are other scenes where you do get that she's being more open and vulnerable. And you know, they talk about in the documentary how um, she's tried to never talk about faith and politics. You just you can't do that. And she's talked more about her politics as of late. And I know some people it's drawn some criticism. In the documentary, she talks about how she how she's a Christian, and I found that really kind of interesting because um, that alienates certain groups of people. So I don't know. I don't really know. I don't know if there's a great question. The documentary, though, I think if there is a weakness, I don't think the documentary tries to even tackle that. I think it just shows us these conversations, and then from there, we have to kind of decipher what's real and what's a character.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I'll, I'll have to make time for that documentary to see for myself. That seems really intriguing, though. But first, I'm going to have to finish watching what my recommendation is for this week, and that is the HBO TV series Succession. Now, I'm probably a little bit behind the zeitgeist on this one. I've just started watching this show uh, with my wife uh, in the last couple of months or so and this has been something that is already finished its second season and is getting things lined up for its third so a little bit behind the times as per usual but uh i'm really glad that i've gotten into it now it's uh kind of a, a black comedy slash drama uh airing on hbo uh it's created by jesse armstrong it's got a really great cast including the great brian cox As the patriarch of this super rich family who are the the owners of this worldwide uh, communications and media conglomerate that kind of has its tendrils in all parts of society. And the first season opens with uh, Brian Cox's patriarch suffering a medical episode that his children think have put him out of commission, so they begin kind of plotting for, well, what's going to be the next step for this giant conglomerate that we are all involved in? And then the patriarch gets better, and that's when things get crazy. So the whole show is kind of this really dysfunctional family backstabbing each other while also not being able to deny the The ties that really binds them to each other as as family, and I don't know. I think it's there's something really Shakespearean about it, something that's really funny about it in in a twisted way. It's just it's a very fascinating show. I'm not sure that I've really encountered a TV show with this many really interesting characters since maybe. Maybe better call Saul. I, I I like it a lot, so I would recommend any of our listeners who are kind of on the fence about checking it out to to definitely make that leap. Um, it's it's pretty good. Yeah, I need to check it out. I've been seeing advertisements for the show,
1: not trailers, just um, images and posters, and I've wondered, hey, oh, I, you know. Is that, is that good? Is that interesting? So it's nice to it's nice to get your recommendation. I love stories about families and the whole mass media empire, all that. that sounds really cool. So um, I, I definitely need to, I definitely need to check that, that out. I, I need to watch a number of HBO shows, The Watchmen or Watchmen. Uh, I need to check that out too. It's, I've heard it's, it's also very good.
0: Well, you, you, need to, you need to take the word of the Christ and Pop Culture 25. Both Succession and Watchmen were in the top 10 of this year's list, so you have no excuse now, Wade. You have to do it. <laughs> no excuse. Listeners, that's
1: how we end our podcast episode, with no excuses. Uh, thank you for listening to our episode this week. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristinPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week— helps us to search for the sacred on screen. Before we head out, Kevin, are you going to be watching the Oscars? Are you going to be tweeting about the Oscars? Our listeners need to know.
0: (laughs) Well, if I do watch the Oscars, I will probably also tweet about them, but that's kind of the rub. Am I going to watch the Oscars? I don't know. I can probably find something better to do with my time if I'm being perfectly honest. So signs point to no, but hey, you know, uh, if I find myself in a particularly masochistic mood, I might make it on on Twitter.
1: <laughs> I like watching the Oscars. I do so whenever I whenever I can. I might tweet about. It. I don't know. I, haven't, I I I don't. I haven't been tweeting a lot. It's been kind of nice. Uh, I, I guess it just depends on. Maybe if we get the kids in bed, I can have you know I can watch and tweet at the same time. If not, then I don't know. There's no telling. We'll see.
0: Yeah. You- we we'll, we'll do we'll do division of labor you know as we often do when 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 we run the podcast you can watch the oscars and i will tweet about the oscars and i think we i think that will uh, at least be an equitable distribution of labor for both of I us i mean
1: i i think that would actually work out even better uh than if we both did both but uh, yeah listeners that is our show once again as always i'm Wade Bearden my co-host is Kevin McLinthin and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you next week.
0: You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com/network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.